are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Welcome to the podcast with a thousand phases, an official podcast of the Joseph Campbell Foundation, featuring interviews and conversations focused on the influence of Campbell, his work, and myth in culture. I'm Tyler Lapkin, podcast producer for the Joseph Campbell Foundation. In the vast landscape of filmmaking, Joseph Campbell's work in mythology has been a guiding light, influencing storytellers across generations. As a well-known example, George Lucas, the mastermind behind Star Wars, turned to Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces as a wellspring of inspiration, crafting the timeless saga that continues to resonate the world over. In today's episode, John Booker of the Joseph Campbell Foundation dives into this dynamic world of cinema and filmmaking with Anthony Byrne. Anthony is a distinguished director known for his work on acclaimed series like Peaky Blinders, Lioness, and the riveting film In Darkness. He has also contributed his artistic touch on music videos for Hozier, Liam Gallagher, and The Smile. In the conversation, we explore Anthony's cinematic journey, unraveling the threads that tie his love of storytelling to the insights and wisdom of Joseph Campbell. And beyond the director's chair, Anthony discusses stepping into a new role, one that requires no script but demands his utmost creativity and care, that of a new dad. So get yourself comfortable and get ready for a conversation that is as enriching and diverse as the stories Anthony has brought to life on screen. Anthony, it is a pleasure to have you on the podcast with A Thousand Faces. I've followed your work for a number of years, and I uh, was delighted to find out that you knew who Joseph Campbell was and that mm. uh, you had... Uh, uh, been you know connected to his work in some way or been familiar with his work in some way yeah very much um he he he's a he's been a huge influence on me uh for a very long time and i i feel like i'm i'm terribly underqualified to be on this this podcast uh being a lay person and not uh, an academic but i think the I think there's universal themes that Campbell speaks about <clears throat> that are very obvious, and I'm sure listeners of the podcast uh, uh, don't need me to um, to dissect them. But I came to to Joseph Campbell through my interest in uh, film, um, and I think it was a Francis Ford Coppola quote: "If you want to be a director, learn how to write," which is very uh, valuable and useful information. And I I would have been I don't know. 15 or 16 or something like that. And um, and it was really through George Lucas and Star Wars, which I think is probably, I, I wouldn't say most, well, maybe most people uh, or, or certainly a, a lot of people's um, uh, gateway to, to Campbell is through George Lucas. Um, and that was very much how I came across him and came across his work. And then it was probably... Uh, I mean, and, and I must also preface that I never really learned how to become a writer, but I learned how to write well enough to get me to be a director, um, which is all I really needed. But what I did learn was uh, structure, 
So what I what I lack as a writer, I certainly have made up for in my understanding of structure, which was also something that was key. And the monomyth was something that I really latched onto, which which again is sort of divisive amongst writers um, who disagree strongly uh, with the the use of that as a, as a kind of um, you know as an architecture or a framework. But I found it very helpful because I was seeing in every in the movies that I was watching, I was seeing that pattern play out. So as I tried to ignore it, it kept kind of staring me in the face every time. So there's obviously something to it. And then I'd heard of The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which was very much something that I loved the sound of. Um, and then I think my memory, which might be wrong, but I think I was in India and I saw a guy reading it. And when I got back, I found the book and I have, well, I have two copies. And I think my ex has the first copy, but then I ended up buying the, the, the William Blake uh, version, um, which I kept kind of like pristine. And it's the other version is the, the raggy version. And then I also, you know, this was the other book that I just love, which is just a series of lectures, I think. Yeah. And then the other book that I came across was uh, Women Who Run With The Wolves, which I have a few copies. This is a, one of those airport versions you can just throw it in your bag. And I, I have kind of over the years just kept these books with me and I dip in and out of them. And then Maya Darren, who's, uh, who's, who's a filmmaker and an artist that I've come across only in the last few years. And I had, I've only put together quite recently the... Um, the connection between her and Campbell, which I was not aware of. Um, so then all these things start to, to, to join up. But um, the other thing I will reveal, which I was I nearly sent to you on an, on an email, but I can show it to you and I'll tell you while we're doing it. But I have um, follow wow. your book is uh, tattoo, <laughs> it's tattooed on my, uh, on my wrist. Um, so, he has very much been a, a strong influence um, on me. I, I, I think of him uh, often and, and it's a surprise to me why he's not, you know, um, why his name isn't as sort of prevalent or out there as, you know, the likes of Richard Dawkins, who's sort of peddling, you know, the same kind of, um, uh, mythology or Christopher Hitchens who was a who's a fantastic uh, writer and journalist um, uh, and other people like that and I and I don't know why that is because his contribution to um, I suppose the humanities um, and anthropology is is profound um, on 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 any arguable level and um, so that it was very much through film and my love of film as a, as a, as a young person and trying to understand uh, what story is and what story means mm. and, and really doing a deep dive. And like I said, I'm not an academic. So I, you know, when I, when I was looking, I didn't look too deeply into other people on podcasts because I probably would have said no. And, um, but 
you know, I find, I still find the text dense, you know, and I still have to reread certain things. And I also, I'm a very kind of forgetful person. I read a lot and then I forget a lot. And then when I go back, I need the trigger. But when I find the trigger, it's almost discovering it again for the first time. And so the joy of, of learning something new again is, is, uh, is always enjoyable. Well, take, take comfort in the fact I have a PhD and it still is very dense for me uh, to, to work through that material. And this podcast is really focused on uh, non-academic people that this work has impacted them. So we've had okay. stand-up comedians. Well, and I'm your guy. <laughs> yeah, because... I still, you know, and I still find myself cross-referencing stuff where, you know, he mentioned something and then I'll go and I'll Google that and I'll be like reading about that for an hour in my free time or whatever. So it's kind of an, an endless, um, you know, you'll never be finished, I think, uh, studying uh, Campbell. But, you know, the basics were something that I really kind of latched onto. And, yeah. and, you know, you see these things, they mirror in your own life when you look back on um you know, failings in your own life or successes and, you know, the sort of snakes and ladders of it all. And, and I just had a baby a couple of weeks ago. And Congratulations. so I, thank you. It's my, my first baby and um, I, I'm 48. So I've kind of left it late, but I left it late. I, I've been thinking so much recently just about being a father and hoping to be a good a good dad and you start to think about those sort of tenets of Campbell and uh, and how important they are and I know I spent a lot of my life sort of in the pursuit of some kind of success which ultimately is never going to be satisfied or satisfying and then also in that learning to live in the moment and you know when you're if you're working on a show that has success or has a cultural impact that you, you sort of, you, that's where you take the boom, you know, and you, and you just keep going forward and you, there's no guarantee that the thing you're going on to is going to be equitable in any regard. So it's a constant kind of um, learning curve. But I think you have to be very aware of that. And I think that's what I've kind of, gleaned from my own sort of self-taught analysis and learnings from from Campbell and then really directing that knowledge inwards and examining yourself <clears throat> um, and I suppose being a grown-up and checking in with yourself and you know as you go along in your own um, hero's journey or sometimes some, sometimes your anti-hero's <laughs> journey um, but hopefully, hopefully you're trying to do the right thing, but um, but making mistakes, um, you know, of various degrees of severity along the way. <laughs> so, what, uh, what is the, what is that? You know, you you've got "Follow Your Bliss," you know, tattooed on on uh, your your, yeah. your your arm, and you obviously have been impacted by that idea and Campbell's very well known for that idea of following your bliss but what what does it mean for you what what has that how, how has that landed well, for you um it's not this sort of 
it's not the selfish <laughs> idea of, you know, just follow your bliss. Um, I think I've been very passionate about, you know, my art and the pursuit of, of trying to be a filmmaker and how difficult that is and the varying degrees of success or and lack of um, over the years. And I think the, the perseverance of that, the endurance of that, um, which I think are, are, are very tied to that idea of follow your bliss, that when, when you're really up against it, <clears throat> and I can remember when I was in my early 20s making short films and just having no money and going back to my parents and, uh, and not really having any direction. Um, I think follow your bliss is the kind of the, the, the true North, you know, it sort of brings you back to um, that, you know, keep going, you know, in, in the sort of, I, I looking back now, I kind of jokingly say it was kind of a mix of endurance and perseverance and, and grand naivety, because if it was explained to you how difficult it would be, um, you just wouldn't do it, I don't think. But I think when you're in it and you sort of dedicate, uh, I suppose, your life really uh, to, to trying to, to do this, you have to sort of check in with yourself. And I, there, were very, there, were, there were quite a few times where I was like, well, this just isn't going to work out, despite having the um, great support of my parents um, who, who, who never said, you know, you should stop this and get a job. They were always very supportive, but you, you've got to check in with yourself and be real with yourself. And, you know, you're constantly looking, looking at others, not to others, but you're looking at your peer group who are all, you know, they all have normal jobs and they're all getting married or buying a house and you've literally got no money, no girlfriend, and you're writing a 10 page script going, how's this going to work out? So I think the follow your bliss thing, which is easier now to to uh, to discuss or talk about because you've kind of beaten it to some degree and you're out of um, you're out of the danger zone and um, but you're always in pursuit of you know the next level the next tier you know it's uh, it's the bigger TV show uh, the, the bigger movie you know whatever that might be and um, which is really not that important but it's the it's the cycle that you have to psychologically be prepared for. So the folly of your bliss is not, you know, um, following some um, um, trivial pursuit. It's, uh, it's, it's a reminder, you know, and it's under an arrow and an arrow is the, the, the head of the arrow is the, is a glyph for create uh, or to create. And so, so it's uh, a reminder of that. I will also be honest in saying that I've at many stages thought about removing that tattoo. It's the only one that I keep thinking about, but um, a good friend recently said, you know, it meant something when you got it, so you should keep it. Yeah. So it's, it, it remains, but um, I thought it was quite interesting. I'm yeah. glad that it does. I'm glad that it does. <laughs> I can get rid of it now after these podcasts. <laughs> right, now you, you've, uh, you've made it public on the, yeah, the Joseph Campbell podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I have a tattoo. Yeah, <laughs> you you um you, you really have you know made it to a place 
in your career that many artists spend a lot of time dreaming about, you know, where you've um, worked with, you know, uh, uh, television shows and, and musical artists and, uh, you know, film, film uh, uh, creators, you know, that and actors that. Um, I've been very lucky. Yeah. The people. Is it luck? Is it something more well, than that? Uh, no, there's somebody uh, said to me, uh, luck has nothing to do with it, but it, I mean, it clearly does um, because you can see this. Uh, I think, I think to be a working a director, and I don't mean in the in the very American um, idea of of TV directing, where you're actually you're, I don't think you're really directing; you're just sort of shooting stuff. I think you I think that's the way it's largely done. But <clears throat> I think to be able to work in any um, in any creative endeavor that whatever it is that you want to do with with some degree of success, um, I think that's. I think that's the win. I think if you can, if you can do that and make a living of it, uh, living out of it, um, then then you're 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 doing you're doing it. It's tough, you know. It's it's <laughs> it's it's not all um, it's not a it's not everything that I think people think. It's it's a lot of grind, you know. E even now, it's still because um, you're. I'm very ambitious, so you're always kind of reaching for the next, uh, the next level, yeah. um, but it's a gift, and I know that, and I and I think I am very lucky. Um, I have had many years where I haven't been lucky, and things haven't gone my way, and then I think, um, I think overall, um, it's it's a real privilege to be able you know because i would i would more often than not say that i'm a storyteller because i spend a lot of my time um i i mean people think have a very kind of basic understanding i think of what directing is but i think you spend i spend a lot of my time breaking through breaking down scripts and looking at structure and looking at character and um i think of myself as i get older more as a storyteller and um, and, you know, I, I, I was also thinking as well, when I knew I was coming to do this podcast of, you know, my, my sort of beginning with a love of film, which really came from my dad, who was introducing me to all these movies. But there was something that was, I, I think, well, for me personally, it was quite profound was that when I was a kid, I used to, my dad would get like, uh, you call them R-rated rated movies. We have like over 18s movies. So we have like uh, PG, 15, and then 18. And I remember in the early 80s, and I would have been, I don't know, 10 or something like that. Uh, I was really young. Anyway, my dad had a copy of uh, Escape from New York on VHS. <laughs> and he was watching it in the middle of the day. And I, I must have just come home from school. And my mom was out. So we were watching Escape from New York and I remember sitting on the floor in front of his armchair and there's a scene, I haven't seen that movie for a really, really long time, but there's a scene in that movie and I might be wrong, but this is how I remember it. They're crossing a bridge <clears throat> in New York and they get attacked and there's a car crash and there's a woman who's helping Kurt Russell out and she gets killed and then she's cut in half by the cars. That's my memory and, and they show it. 
And I remember as a kid going, holy shit, can you curse on this or not? You can't. Okay, because I've I'm trying really hard not to. I'm Irish and I curse all the time. It's terrible. Anyway, I was like, holy fuck, the, this woman is dead. So a couple of things. I'd never seen somebody cut in half before on screen. And I'd never seen a woman killed before on screen. screen. Um, you know, so they were two big things. And my dad realized like, oh shit, <laughs> that was pretty graphic. And he, he said, um, he said two things. One, which might sound terrible uh, uh, out of context, was just don't tell your mother. <laughs> and I was like, don't worry about it. But the second thing was the thing that really um, landed. And he said, I remember he, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, don't worry, it's only make believe. Mm. And I went, wow. I don't, I know what the two words individually are. I know what to make something is and I know what believe is, but I don't know what make believe is. And I remember then thinking, what the fuck does make believe mean? You know, but I understood that it was like, it's pretend it's not, it's not real. And from the tone of what he, what he was saying. And I, and it wasn't something that I was traumatized by as well, just to, to, to point that out. It wasn't like having nightmares or anything. And, I think it was just a visceral reaction, but uh, more so from him. But as I got older, I kept thinking, um, well, not as I got older, I realized and understood obviously what make-believe means. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if that could be your life yeah. and you could spend your life in make-believe and escape from the sort of drudgery and the mediocrity of what I think I, as a young person, I think probably most young people do when they look around them or where they grew up or your parents or your parents' friends or your school and the kind of routine of, of life that you start to rebel against as a young person. And I remember going, I want to spend my life in make-believe. And I think I always lived in my head. So when I did come across Campbell, understanding the kind of the, um, the foundational sort of aspects of what he was talking about and where these, these um, huge kind of cornerstones of storytelling and mythology stem from, and that was quite fascinating to me. But it was always the kind of, the benchmark was that, moment with my dad saying don't worry it's only make-believe and as a I was like wow that would be amazing if I could just do that <laughs> oh that's powerful really powerful and I and I, I thought about it the other day I mean I've, I've mentioned it to friends over the years but I hadn't talked about it for a long time and it made perfect sense to this because I spend all my time I've spent say four years doing peaky where you're talking about a family that's not your family they're not even real but you're so attached to these characters and you're attached to their psyche and their motivations and they are real you know but ultimately it's make-believe and to be able to spend time in these worlds whether they're contemporary or period or what, whatever it might be i think that's the real the real success yeah. of it um, yeah. But that was the thing that I kept uh, kept going back to. And, uh, well, Joseph Campbell talked a lot about 
um, the power of the image and, and the mythological power of the image. And you have spent a lot of time in shows like, you know, Peaky Blinders, but also in like The Last Kingdom, where you've uh, directed some episodes there. And um, you, you've spent a, a good deal of time taking modern audiences into, in a visual sense, uh, mm. these other worlds and other uh, understandings of the human experience. Um, what is the process like for for helping us understand what a family who existed in London in the 1930s, you know, is, is all about? Well, I think, I think the, I think the success of, of Peaky, I mean, there's, there are, there are obvious, um, there are obvious visual cues and I think Killian Murphy's performance being one of them. And I think the aesthetic of the show, uh, I think, I think the fact that everybody wears flat caps is, is largely down to the show and it and it does have a strong aesthetic but i think i think the big thing is more um subliminal i suppose it's something that steve knight created uh, which is a mythology you know that he created this mythology from the stories that he heard as a kid um in birmingham where he grew up and they were all stories about the peaky blinders and and people in the area that that he grew up in, and from traveling communities, and um, that that he and or his family, some of his family came from, um, I think that's the they're the universal themes, um, that that make kind of everything accessible. Um, you know, it's there's there's a great James Joyce quote, the you know in the particulars contain the universal, and I think that's what Peaky is. You know, it's like if you pitch that to a studio and it was, you know, we're talking gangsters in the 1930s in uh, Birmingham, you know, it's going to be huge. You'd never get it made, you know, but um, he has, he sort of tapped into and was able to deliver a mythology to an audience that understand the kind of universal concepts of myth and um, because they are kind of inherently within us so it's it feels familiar and you can say well you know it's it reminds me of um the sopranos or it reminds me of the godfather or something like that but you know those stories as well are from you know far greater and and much older stories so i think that's probably the key to the success of that and then the visual storytelling you know i always thought of peaky as a graphic novel mm. I think while I'm not a, a, a reader of, of graphic novels, when you look at the images that, that, that land in graphic novels and how powerful that imagery can be, um, you know, it's like a graphic novel and a Western. And, you know, you couldn't find sort of two better tropes like the Western is, it's something that, again, it's so old and so inherent in all of us, whether you, or in Texas or in Dublin, Ireland, um, you know, it's imagery that sort of we're all sort of steeped in, whether it's the Marlboro Man or John Ford Westerns, you know, it's part of culture. And I think ultimately that's what ended up happening with, with Peaky, with those amazing silhouettes of the guys in those long coats and smoking cigarettes and walking around in flat caps, you know, they're modern 
cowboys and Indians, you know, it's mm. the, it's, I think it's as kind of binary as that. And I mm. think people, people find that very accessible. Yeah. Well, C- Campbell was, you know, um, really uh, taken with um, a lot of, of thinkers from Ireland uh, besides Carl Jung, I don't know that anyone outside of James Joyce had more impact on Joseph Campbell and the work of Joseph Campbell is greatly influenced by the work of James Joyce, but also, you know, um, Irish thinkers like uh, Patrick Colum, that was a mythologist that, you know, that Campbell really looked up to. And, you know, he's a he's a novelist and a poet and a dramatist, you know, uh, so we wouldn't necessarily call him an academic mythologist, but Campbell saw something in Irish culture that seemed to provide an insight into the world of the mythological. Is it storytelling? What What is it about um, uh, I Ireland? Think it is storytelling. I mean, I can remember, you know, there's a, there's a garden of remembrance in Dublin in the, in the middle of the city. And it's quite an old uh, sort of memorial. It's not a park, uh, water feature type thing. And at the top of it is a huge statue of these, um, I think it's the children of Lear and it's children who were turned into swans and it's these huge swans flying off. I could I could have this wrong and I might be absolutely lashed for it. But I think I'm mostly right. And we used to go, um, well, we probably went once with school. And I remember always loving Irish myths. And I know that Michael Fassbender and his um, producing partner are trying to get a movie made based on Cú Cullen, who's another um, very famous Irish mythological figure. But I loved all those stories and and read them when I was a kid. And I was also thinking recently there was... um, in school, and this is like the mid, mid, late 80s. And in Dublin, it was an old boys school run by priests, but um, it was called Classical Studies, which sounds terrible. And they could have come up with a better name. Um, And it was taught to us by a a teacher called Mr. Brannigan, who was relentlessly tormented by us um, uh, because no one was interested in mythology no one understood it and everybody was just doing maths and Irish and geography and you know this kind of stuff and then this sort of old man he was an old guy at the time looked a bit like the character from Up and you know he kind of he kind of comes in really short guy and he mumbled a lot I mean he didn't help himself either and he was a serious academic I think he like four degrees or something like that and he'd mumble and tell stories and I found them really interesting, but nobody else did. And then, and he, and like I say, it was just, it was, it was horrendous, um, that class. But it just didn't land with anybody, you know, like nobody was interested in mythology. And it might have been down to his sort of teaching style. I don't think, I think now looking or thinking about him recently, I was like, he's, he was definitely on the, the spectrum. But I mean, what were we to know back then? And it would have made a difference. But I was always sort of quite fascinated by by his class. Um, and I don't know if it's, I don't think classical studies or mythology is even taught in school anymore. If, you know, when I started school, Latin finished, which I was grateful for. 
but I don't think classical studies is being taught in um, in in my old school in Dublin. But um, Irish mythology, um, there were fantastic stories. Yeah. Oh. Banshees. I mean, just the idea of the banshee, which I was thinking about recently. I was thinking about like a horror movie, and um, because nobody's, I, to my to my knowledge, hasn't really done something on you know the banshee, and I was like, that would be a really great horror movie. And then the other thing I was reading about was the puka, which was the sort of other, and um, uh, it's it's in different mythologies, but it's it's kind of I think it began in Irish mythology, and it was again this sort of small hairy creature that would sort of appear. It was a shapeshifter. Yeah. Um, so all of that stuff is really interesting, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the the even the history of of areas like Newgrange, you know, in uh, Ireland, that uh, is is. Yeah, it's perhaps some of the oldest mythology in uh, uh, the world, you know, came out of that area. Yeah. And we we still know very little about the practices and rituals that went on there and um, up through the Druids and, and other groups, you know. That, yeah, and the High Kings as well. Yes, and High yeah. Kings, yeah. That's fascinating. It is. Yeah, I, I, and I, not enough has really been done with that. I would have, I would have thought maybe... I mean, off the back of stuff like Game of Thrones and The Witcher and stuff like that. I think there's, well, I think if, I, I don't know Fassbender, but um, I think if that's what he's doing, I, I, I would wish him all the success with it because I would love to watch a big budget, you know, Hollywood and um, Braveheart type movie of uh, Kukon yeah. uh, with him being the, the role. Um, I think there's, you know, a huge audience for that. Yeah. And I think stuff like Game of Thrones probably proved as well that there's a huge interest in mythology. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, yeah. As, a, a as a director, you know, of um, uh, these these shows, these television shows and these films that um, take us into the uh even when the mythology is not uh you know something that uh, uh is um character driven is is banshees you know or, or something like that um th there often still is a, a way of making sense of the world that is the mythology that people mm -hmm. live by and um you know that that may be uh the family in peaky blinders it may be um uh a musical artist that you're you're working with you're still working with artists who are trying to explain how they make sense of the world which is what mythology is all about you as the director um you you seem to ha have an interest in getting in deeper below the surface of just creating something that looks cool or is, is visually interesting, but that actually has a substance or an energy um, that speaks to some of these more ancient ideas. Um, is that part of your conscious thought process or does it just come out in, in your work? Um, no, it, it is part of the a conscious thought process. I mean, the, I think... The music videos, I make them because they freak me out. They're the, it's the only time I, I have any anxiety, you know. Um, I, I'm not an anxious person, and I, and I'm, I, I think I'm pretty confident, and, uh, you know, on set. But music videos are, are for me, 
the most kind of angst ridden. I'd have a sleepless, sleepless nights and thinking about them because they're so unpredictable. And then, you know, whatever the artist is, whether they change their mind, there's, there's no sort of script to it. You have a sort of loose structure in your head. So they're probably, you know, they're probably not the best example, but, you know, something like there was a Liam Gallagher video <clears throat> called One of Us, I think was the name of it. Anyway, but that was a, about his relationship with his family and the fact that the band that um, that he had founded with his brother had been broken up, I think, for like, maybe it was 20 years. Would that be right? That sounds mm. like too long. But anyway, um, so that, that video, uh, which was written by Steve Knight, um, uh, that was something we spent a long time thinking about because it was deeply personal um, to him. But I think, and I think again, Dinner and Diatribes, which is uh, probably the video I'm most proud of, I think, with uh, uh, which was for Hosier with Anya Taylor-Joy. That was one that we talked about a lot, you know, and that, that that's, an, that's a, you know, I don't know what the myth is, but, you know, somebody locked in a room in front of, their um in front of their devil and being forced to confront that devil whilst flicking matches and hoping that they're gonna take light and there's a lot going on there um you know that was something that we talked a lot about um myself and andrew who who's who is hosier uh, at the time and th they were really interesting conversations but i think largely like personally speaking when i was a kid I learned, I learned so much about the world from movies. In fact, I, probably everything I was learning was about movies and what they sort of reflected back at me. Um, and I'm trying to understand the world and understand myself, you know, so there were profoundly affecting movies um, that, that you're not, I don't think consciously, but you're 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 consuming these movies, and uh, when I I remember when I was very young, I think it was like fourteen. I did a, a an adults um, film appreciation course at a university in Dublin, and it was a night course. My mom would drop me and pick me up, and I think it was ten weeks, ten movies, ten weeks, ten lectures, and they were showing. They showed a, a Jean-Luc Godard movie called Vivre Seville, and I'd never seen, I'd only seen, say Spielberg, just to be broad. I was watching kind of Hollywood movies, particularly Spielberg, who's who's still a huge influence. And I don't think there's a better shot maker than mm. Spielberg. And I and I learned so much about movie making, but also storytelling from Spielberg because um and it's not reductive to say it, but he there are accessible stories and they're universal stories and they deal with universal themes. E.T., I mean, in terms of mythology, uh, it couldn't be it couldn't be better. Jaws, um, Indiana Jones as a character, he was, you know, that was one of my sort of uh, most profound movie going experiences. Um, and I loved the the last movie, which which a lot of people didn't like, but I really loved it. Um, uh, I learned so much from these movies. And then I see Vivre Seville, which completely blows my mind. I've never seen anything like that. Didn't even 
had no concept that you could tell a story using images like that or cutting like that. And and I was only 14 and your and your world just kind of explodes. And then all of a sudden, you know, renting new wave movies and Italian movies and just consuming uh, and reading as much as I could um, about these filmmakers and trying to understand what these images are communicating in a way that Spielberg and say Hollywood American movies and uh, are not. Yet all of these new wave filmmakers had adopted the Hollywood style. So all of that influence was coming from Hollywood movies, particularly the 40s and 50s. And they're looking at whatever American filmmakers are doing, actually mostly European filmmakers who um, uh, emigrated uh, to, to Hollywood are making these movies. And then you're, you're trying to build a kind of a framework in your own mind of what these images are doing to you and what they're telling you. And then I'm a visual person and, I'm, and I, as I've said, I'm definitely not an academic as my parents myself would vouch for. But <laughs> I think deeply about, uh, about what an image can do, you know, mm. and, and how that is going to impact a viewer. And I think I probably um, reached the most kind of fluid use of imagery uh, married with Steve Knight's scripts with, um, with Peaky in terms of of trying to find the simplest but most impactful image to communicate, um, uh, not the story beat, the story beats being spoken, but to communicate what's underneath, you know, to communicate the the, the psyche of the character, and uh, and then also had the control and the edit to be able to allow those moments to breathe so that the audience can. Um, can project. And I always think the difference, I think traditionally the difference between cinema and television, television is people talking and they're telling you everything and they're telling you what to think so you don't have to, to do it. Where cinema is creating a space that allows you to project onto the image. Um, and I think in, in terms of, I, I don't know what it is because it's not mythology, but it's something that's innately in you, the viewer, that you're able to sit there and watch Tommy Shelby, who's not talking who, and who oftentimes isn't doing anything. There's a moment of stillness that has immense power. Um, but I've stolen all of those moments from every movie that I've seen, you know, whether it's an image of Darth Vader, you know, just breathing or Indiana Jones, you know, the way he turns his head and he just squints, you know, but then that could be Dirty Harry, you know, it could be anybody. Um, it's it, it's all of these images have tremendous import um but you can't use them all at the same time so you have to be um, quite judicious in how you time the use of these um images and marry them with you know for instance the mythology of um steve knight's scripts for peaky yeah. so these are the things that I think deeply about that nobody else is going to notice or, or should really be thinking about. But it creates a sense of the experience of, of how the story is told to you rather than in the lots of 
TV shows where it's just everything is butted up against each other and there's no breath and then you know they're afraid you're going to switch so as soon as somebody stops talking you're gone you're into the next scene and they're just talking to them talking and you're into the next scene and then it's over and you're like I don't know what happened mm. um so so when you also then to take it back to mythology and the earliest images lots of those images that are painted on cave walls a lot of them are action you know there's a lot of action in those images there's a, there's a lot of you know animals running people hunting and uh, some of them are quite violent even though they're quite basic images but there's definitely a momentum to uh, the distillation of you know whatever they did in, in a day is where they were like that was the best point of the day when we killed that bison or whatever it was or mammoth <laughs> you know and that's why do we we should put that on the wall <laughs> you know so there's got to be something to that where you're you're identifying you know the, the the key piece of visual information that is is exciting or helpful um, you know and the other thing that's in, interesting and I'll, I'll shut up after this but um uh years ago I was reading about the Rosetta Stone, um, which still blows my mind. Um, and it is a piece of, um, of time, time travel, like it's a time capsule, but it's also this, it's a, it's a complete cipher to the past. And I go to the British Museum, maybe, I don't know, once a year, definitely. And I just stand in front of the Rosetta Stone and just look at this thing that, is hugely important and i know that it's 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 just it's a very dull um i think it's like a council or a tax document basically that was erected and just it was like hear ye hear ye you fuckers better pay attention and follow this thing but if it wasn't found they would never be able to uh, decipher hieroglyphs which to me is mind-blowing and and I don't know what it has to do with Campbell or mythology. And I think there's probably obvious things, but to be able to stand in front of something that's real and that that has huge meaning, that is largely forgotten, and is quite is still uh, really fascinating and quite powerful. And I, I just think there's endless uh, there's an endless source of. Uh, knowledge and wonder and and mystery to what Campbell I think in he in many regards is a Rosetta Stone because he's able to bring all of this together because I would never do it and maybe you would but I would never in a million years do all of this stuff and to dedicate your life to um understanding and then being able to communicate i mean he is one of the great communicators and to, to somebody like me is uh, i i would i will always be grateful for because i will never fully understand or be able to read or or um, i mean i wouldn't even have the time you'd have to take four years out of your life and, and do the p i'd have to do a phd well i'd have to do a degree first too i get <laughs> I, it would be years and years of study that I'm not going to do. 
but I think it's innate. You know, I think there's an awful lot of it is innate. And I, 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 I've always trusted my instincts and my instincts have always served me well. And, and I have an innate understanding of story um, as well as a love of mythology and, um, and reading. And I think if you have all of those things, you kind of set up for success, but you know, still it's by the by, um, that you're always going to be learning. So I don't think I know everything. Um, and, and I don't want to, you know, it's also, I never want to learn everything. I want to know, I want to continue to keep figuring things out. And I love when somebody comes out with something that I haven't thought of and I'm like, fuck, that's a great idea. Where'd you get that, you know, or, or a quote. And I think what, what sort of brought me to you is I, I, um, I don't know. I, I think the thing, it must've been just pushed to me on Instagram, but, you know, I love reading those quotes because uh, again, most of them I've heard before or read before. Um, but I come across ones and I'm like, man, I've never read that one before. That's great. You know, save. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Saved a folder of quotes that I will never go back to. <laughs> oh, the quotes are, are uh, they're powerful and, you know, they, um, they they are magnets that draw so many people into these ideas. And as we start to wrap up our time today, Anthony, as a storyteller, what is it that allows story to continue to be such a powerful force in the human experience? We have evidence that from the earliest days of ancient cultures, story was central to their experience. And even now, with all the technology we've developed and as far as we've made it, you know, as, as a human society, um, Campbell recognized it, it, it comes back to story and storytelling. Yeah. Why do you think that is? What What is it about storytelling that continues to be such a powerful force in our society? Well, I think as humans, we're, you know, hugely curious. And I think story is a large part of that. I think there's a constant exploration of the self, which has kind of been mined, I think, probably negatively uh, now. But I think, wasn't isn't it? didn't Campbell say that that we are born that it's something that's just it's in us that it's in our gene or our DNA that it's something that's hardwired it's not something that you learn that we have this um, this desire to tell story I think that's the thing that I love that I was so fascinated by that the, the kind of the, the big world idea that you know God um is a story because um and I do this is where my academia um failings come kick in and you can help me but um you have uh you know people on another continent who have no fucking idea about any of this and they've created the same story essentially as everybody over here and then they meet up and they're like well hang on a second how did that happen so it is something that's just in us so we're we're constantly going to tell stories we also love gossip so, you know, and being Irish gossip is a large part of being an Irish person, um, which is probably why we're great storytellers. So you're always going to have um, you're always going to have that that aspect um, of probably where early 
story or oral storytelling was probably just bitching about your neighbor. And, uh, and then somebody started writing the stories down <laughs> and then somebody said, that's a really good story. We should put that on stage. Somebody's like, what's a stage? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Um, so there's probably, I think there's, there's an element of that. And I think the negative part of it is that everybody now who uh, through social media largely is the sort of, you know, the hero or thinks they're the hero of their own journey and feels that everybody else should be the audience for, for that. Um, so, you know, you've got people who, who, you know, have YouTube channels and TikTok and, and they've basically created, the, you know, the hero's journey just for themselves and their own ego. So there's a lot of that, which I think hopefully will not be proliferated um, to, 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 uh, against storytelling. But um, I don't know. When I think about it, for me, I always go back to religion because I was brought up in a not a not an overly strict my mom was a big believer and still is but not in the way she was uh, back in the day when i was a kid but it was drilled into us and then i went like i said i went to this catholic boys school run by priests and religion was really you know the dogma of it it, it, it was sort of it was taught um through fear you know um uh, god is watching basically sees everything and I also think that a, a large part of my interest in Campbell was, was, I suppose, learning um, that this was all just bullshit. And, and then unpicking that mythology and learning about it in a, in a deeply profound way. And that wasn't troubling, you know, because I'm sure there's people who could sort of go, Joseph Campbell is a cult or he's a cult leader or something like this. And, uh, but I think in terms of storytelling, that's probably the greatest story ever told, you know, the greatest con anyway. And I spent years and years and years sort of deprogramming myself out of Catholicism and out of that sort of fear and that, you know, don't do this, don't do that, don't touch yourself. He's, he's, he's literally... He's in the room. Um, you know, that, that had a profound effect on me. Um, and, and I still, you know, I still find myself talking about it now, but um, uh, the hero with a thousand faces and, and Campbell's writing certainly helped um, in a big way to, to, to understand what story is. And I suppose to take back to your, to your question, it's just innate in us. We have a we have an endless curiosity in everything, and um, even here, sitting you know, sitting here talking to you, and uh, and having and thinking about these stories from my own um, childhood, and 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 as a young person, they they kind of dredge up so much stuff, you know, and uh, we're full of stories, you know. takeaway for me that emerged during the conversation with Anthony was when he reflected on the challenging process of pursuing one's passion. He astutely noted, if it was explained to you how difficult following your bliss actually is, you probably wouldn't do it. Following your bliss is easier to discuss afterward 
when you are out of the danger zone. Anthony emphasized the importance of checking in and being real with oneself, highlighting that the path becomes clear in hindsight, well beyond the risks and uncertainties. And as this story demonstrates, there's an innate sense within each of us regarding the trajectory of our lives and the unique gifts we possess. Anthony's words echo the sentiment that failing to heed this inner calling results in a missed opportunity for a more fulfilling life. Anthony drew parallels between his journey and the wisdom of Campbell, likening Campbell to a Rosetta Stone. Campbell's ability to decode the language of myths, making their messages universally understandable, has provided a guiding light for many creative individuals. And lastly, Anthony exemplifies that the process of storytelling and having the awareness of the message of mythology as elucidated by Campbell continues to unfold new possibilities, leaving an enduring mark on individual lives and shaping the cultural narrative. Next time on the podcast with a thousand faces, we're joined by Trudy Goodman. Trudy is a luminous figure in the world of meditation and mindfulness. She has dedicated over four decades to exploring the intersections of contemplative practices and human well-being. As an early teacher of mindfulness-based stress reduction, she collaborated with Dr. John Kabat-Zinn at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. In 1995, she co-founded the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy, marking a pioneering effort to merge these transformative disciplines. Deeply rooted in Zen and Theravada traditions of Buddhism, Trudy served as a resident Zen teacher at the Cambridge Buddhist Association. Later, she founded Insight LA, a global hub for Buddhist insight meditation and mindfulness practices. Trudy has gone from being a sought-after psychotherapist in Cambridge with a graduate degree from Harvard to being the voice of Trudy the Love Barbarian on Duncan Trussell's Netflix series Midnight Gospel. Trudy also happens to be the wife of Jack Hornfield, and together they continue to teach thousands worldwide the benefits of meditation and mindfulness practice. In the episode, we discuss meditation, mythology, and her interpretation of what Campbell meant by a joyful participation in the sorrows of the world. Trudy Goodman, next time on the podcast with a thousand faces. The podcast with a thousand faces is a production of the Joseph Campbell Foundation and the Mythmaker Podcast Network. It is produced by Tyler Lapkin, executive producer John Booker, editing and audio services provided by Charles Mallet, all music exclusively provided by APM Music. For more podcasts and information about Joseph Campbell, please visit jcf.org.